Steve, or Mr. Tumnus, as my kids affectionately call him. Very impressed by many things Steve just said, including quoting Abraham Lincoln, uh, the British, the British man, Steve. Um, really good to be with you guys. As Steve said, this is not the most exciting topic for many people, but you are obviously interested in it, and that is exciting to me. Uh, talking about church polity is sort of like talking about plumbing. Uh, as, as my friend Ryan has, has said before, uh, no one comes over to your house to see your plumbing, but everyone will recognize it if it's messed up. Uh, and it can create a big mess, uh, and it's quite obvious if your plumbing is jacked up. So uh, the only exception to that rule is my son and another son that I know, both of whom are Ukrainian, uh, who love plumbing. They will come over to your house and find problems uh, at your house. Uh, we just sent my son James up to uh, my sister-in-law's house, and he just texted back to us, lots of problems, plumbing, expensive. So we want to uh, avoid the mess and uh, deal with uh, this subject, which is vitally important because the church is important. Uh, Jesus loves his church, and our church structures can help or hinder the way we care for our church and the way we advance the mission of the church. Uh, So it's fundamental to uh, what we've been asked to do. Now, my task is to talk about moving from solo leader to plural leadership, uh, which is a a bit of a, a challenging assignment for me because... Our church from the beginning started with plural leadership. Uh, We planted our church with three elders and one that we uh, put in process uh, pretty soon. Um, And that was because I had been in other models in two uh, former churches, more traditional churches, uh, where it was the pastor and his staff or the senior pastor model where you have, you know, one guy uh, perched at the top of the pyramid and everyone else below him. And I I want to say that many godly people hold this position, um, and so I don't question uh, uh, intention, nor do I want to criticize, but I would humbly offer a different vision of uh, pastoral leadership. Um, We say to our church planting teams that uh, team is more important than location. Uh, You give me the right team, and I don't really care where where I go. Um, I think anywhere you live will get old at some point. Um, But what I love is working with like-minded brothers uh, and sisters as you broaden out this team to think about a core team that would include both uh, men and women. Um, But my assignment this morning is to talk about this this central team, this this team of elders. Um, And so I assume if you're in the room, you're in one of five categories, which makes it really hard to prepare a talk because you don't know exactly who you're talking to. Uh, You may be in a solo role uh, and you're interested in the why of plurality. Uh, You may be a solo leader and you want to move to plurality. uh, And so you're interested in how, how do you do it? How do you transition? You simply may not have any elders. You know you want elders and uh, you kind of know how, you just don't have them yet. And like one of our uh, planters in Philly just uh, asked for our church to pray, pray that we could uh, find some elders. Um, Or you may be encountering rapid membership growth, which causes you uh, to be interested in this subject. You need help shepherding. Or you could be in the process of church planting and you need help with literally everything. And so um, wherever you're at, I'm going to try to hit uh, these various topics in the, the time that I have. This is very hard work. This work of, of establishing healthy leadership, uh, it's harder than writing a, a vision statement for your church. It's harder than coming up with a cool church name. Um, it requires assessments, long conversations, willingness to let go, 
being challenged, uh, but it's needed. And we in Acts 29 have, uh, really want to, as Steve said, we, we promote uh, eldership in all of our churches. All of our Acts 29 guys have an eldership. Um, and we don't want to be talking about the alpha male macho man who plants the church. Uh, we, want to, we want to emphasize a team of humble and wise and godly pastors who plant churches and shepherd churches. So I want to divide my talk in five parts. If you like lists, I'm your guy. Uh, it's very systematic. So um, I'll just kind of hit a lot of high points and leave room for Q&A. Number one, value and pl- plurality. Number two, enjoying plurality. Number three, building plurality. Number four, practicing plurality. And number five, transitioning to plurality. Valuing plurality, enjoying plurality, building plurality, practicing plurality, transitioning to plurality. So on valuing, uh, what I have in mind here is just seeing it in the New Testament. And uh, Steve mentioned Acts 15. uh, And I think the pattern of eldership in local churches jumps off the pages of the New Testament, but has strangely fallen out of practice in many places. It seems to be the very clear New Testament pattern. Uh, For example, elders are in the churches of Judea and the surrounding areas, uh, Acts 11, James 5, 14 to 15. Elders govern the church in Jerusalem, Acts 15, Acts 21. Elders are found in Derbe, Lystra, and Antioch, Acts 14. Act, uh, elders are in Ephesus, Acts 20, uh, 1 Timothy 5, 17. Elders existed, according to Peter, throughout Northwest Asia Minor, uh, Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Elders are mentioned in uh, Thessalonica, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, and the writer of Hebrews mentions them in uh, chapter 13, verse 17. One of the passages that I love the most out of all of those is Acts chapter 13, which I would draw your attention to for just a moment. Uh, this is an important one for us within Acts 29 because it's in the context of, of church planting. It's in the context of mission. This is uh, Paul being sent out by the church in Antioch on the first so-called missionary journey. And Paul had preached in Pisidian Antioch. He had preached in Iconium, Lystra, Derby, And as you probably know, it was a very fruitful time, and it was a very adventurous time. He was almost put to death. But Paul gets knocked down, and he gets up again. And he goes right back into these areas. And before Paul returns back to his sending church, um, he does something. He, he returns to these places to Acts chapter 13, verse 22, strengthen, strengthen uh, the souls of the disciples. And he does three particular things before he leaves them. He wanted, wanted at least three things to be in place. It says in Acts 13, let's pick it up in 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. So there's the first thing that Paul did. He Encourage them in the faith, definite article of the faith, that is the gospel. If you don't have the gospel, you don't have a church. You may have a cult, but you don't have a church. You may have a crowd, but you don't have a church. Church planting is a theological endeavor because all mission is theological and all theology should be missional. We're not the only religion that has preachers. We're not the only religion that has missionaries. What makes our preaching different, what makes our missionaries different is what we preach. And so Paul had to ensure that these individuals had a robust understanding of the faith of the gospel. So that was the first thing before Paul would leave them. Second thing, it says, he encouraged them by saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God, which he himself was personifying uh, by the marks on his own body from that recent trip. 
And it says, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church. So that's number two, a robust understanding of the gospel and then the appointment of elders in every church. So here again, you see this pattern and, and Paul valuing plurality. This was not a corporate board, but a team of shepherds who know the flock, feed the flock, lead the flock, protect the flock. John Stott, in his commentary on Acts, says this about uh, this appointment of elders. It was both local and plural, local in that elders were chosen from within the congregation, not imposed from without, and plural in that the modern pattern of one pastor, one church was simply unknown. Instead, there was a pastoral team, which is likely to have included, depending on the size of the church, full-time and part-time ministers, paid and voluntary workers, elders, deacons, deaconesses, and so on. Well, that's the, that is the, the, the pattern of uh, a robust understanding of the gospel, appointment of elders. And then the third thing it says is that with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So there is a trust in God's faithfulness. And with that, Paul's, Paul's ready to move on. And so, gospel, pastoral oversight, and trust in God. We need it all. That's the value of plurality in the New Testament. Secondly, how do we enjoy plurality, or what are the benefits of plurality? So it's not just biblical, but it's very practical, isn't it? And I would argue that plurality makes your job more enjoyable. I only have 12 benefits to give you. Number one... It protects you from mistakes you can make as the lone pastor. It does allow us to make better decisions, doesn't it? Protects us from mistakes we could make as the lone pastor. Secondly, it helps make up for your deficiencies as a pastor. And we all have deficiencies, don't we? One of the ways we make up for our deficiencies is by godliness. It's amazing what you can do if you pursue godliness, right? But another way you make up for your deficiencies is through teamwork. Um, one of the great examples, though it's not a New Testament uh, church example, but Ezra and Nehemiah. You have Nehemiah, the administrator, the organizer, getting everything ready. And then when it's Bible time in Nehemiah 8, Nehemiah slides aside and he lets Ezra preach. There's a great, a great little example, I think, of uh, one person identifying his strengths and uh, identifying the strengths of others and letting people uh, really utilize what, what the Lord has blessed them with. Number three, it guards against sacrificing your family because if you lose that, you lose everything. So you will be able to share responsibilities uh, as a plurality. So it, it protects you from mistakes. It makes up for your deficiencies. It guards against sacrificing your family. Number four, it provides accountability. Many pastors have no ministries any longer because they have fallen into great sin. And this doesn't mean they couldn't do it without plurality, but it would be much harder. And when the church knows that there's accountability within the eldership, that breeds great trust in the congregation, doesn't it? Number five, it provides encouragement. It provides encouragement. Someone asked an old pastor one time, how have you managed to remain in ministry for so long? And he said, someone once told me, never leave the ministry when you're tired or discouraged. So I've never left the ministry. <laughs> it is very hard, isn't it? And it's often lonely. And many planters and pastors uh, throw in the towel because there is no support system. And that's the great blessing of plurality, of having brothers in the trenches with you who encourage you. Number six, it builds confidence. 
When you're on the same page and you're able to speak on behalf of a group of people, well, that's really going to help you, especially as you are uh, dealing perhaps with a difficult issue. Often pastors lead uh, timidly because they're by themselves. They're a solo. Number seven, it allows you to divide their shepherding responsibilities, which is very important. We at Imago Day currently have 50 small groups, and we have uh, about 12 elders, uh, staff and lay, and we divide those small groups uh, between our elders. So every elder has uh, four or five, six groups, depending on the, the elder's capacity. Um, but that's very important. So we don't just have uh, Tony and uh, his staff. And if uh, I don't visit someone in the hospital, it, it meant the JV team showed up. But rather, we have a group of pastors who uh, are trying to do both macro and micro shepherding. One of the books that's been really helpful through the years for us is Tim Whitmer's book, The Shepherd Leader, where Whitmer divides up the categories of shepherding of knowing, leading, feeding, and protecting. And there is a macro way in which you do knowing, leading, feeding, and protecting, and a micro way that you do knowing, leading, feeding, and protecting. Um, and so the, 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 the benefit of having shepherds to, to divide these responsibilities is, is very obvious uh, and very important. Number eight, it ensures doctrinal integrity. That was Steve's last line about protecting the church against heresy. <clears throat> Number nine, it allows for a team teaching model to flourish. I don't know if you even aim for this, but we, we do aim for this, a shared pulpit. Um, not only a shared pulpit, but shared uh, uh, discussion about sermon preparation. That normally happens for us on a Wednesday. Um, and we, we often say at our church, we want you to be more excited about the book of the Bible that we're preaching on than the one who is actually preaching. Uh, we want the attention to be upon the scripture uh, and not upon uh, who you think is, is, is Paul or, or, or Peter, um, but rather upon uh, the gospel. Number 10, it, it guards against the celebrity pastor movement that permeates the Christian subculture. We don't need more superstars. We need more gospel-centered teams of pastors. And if you have a plurality of pastors shepherding faithfully, then you actually won't be a very big deal at your church. That's what I've experienced at least. <laughs> I would say no one even shakes my hand after I preach at Imago Day, um, And I really enjoy that. I really, I really just enjoy being part of the church. And at first it bothered me, um, but, but now I've actually grown to love it. I love just being part of the church and being one of the pastors. That's how I introduce myself every Sunday as I do the welcome. Hi, I'm Tony. I'm one of the pastors, um, which I will get to in just a moment as a practical way to start to cultivate this in your church. Uh, number 11, it's the best way to prepare for the departure of an elder or pastor. I really think I could leave tomorrow and there would be a bit of a setback perhaps, but the church isn't built around me and the mission would continue. And we've seen things, haven't we, fall apart when an individual leaves. Finally, number 12, it helps to clarify the role of deacons. In many contexts, deacons are doing eldering work. But the role of deacon is not the same kind of shepherding that a pastor is doing, is it? And it's interesting, while many people kind of challenge the notion of plurality of elders, I've never heard anyone advocate for a single deacon model. We need a plurality of both, elders, plural, and deacons, plural, in every church, singular. So that's number two. 
All right, number three, building plurality. What is it that makes a really good team? That's my question here. And this would apply beyond an elder team, but also to your core team. But let me just identify some pretty obvious ones. I have uh, uh, just another list here of five. First, theological unity. What makes a good team? You're on the same page theologically. That should go without saying. Uh, that doesn't mean you, you agree on literally every passage in the Bible. There are some very difficult things. Even Peter said Paul was hard to understand, which we all can identify with, can't we? Um, I don't know what that brother's saying here. But, but when it comes to uh, the, the, the essentials, you're on the same page. Secondly, not only theological unity, but philosophical unity. That is, there's an agreement on how you do church at your, at your local church. So there are various ways you can do small groups. But you guys want, you're, you're in agreement. You don't have one guy championing one approach and another guy championing another approach. Um, but so there's, there's an agreement philosophically about how you're going to operate. Third, relational harmony. Theological unity, philosophical unity, relational harmony. That means you actually like each other. You, you, you like spending time together. Uh, and you, the reason this is so important, not just because that should be the way it, it should be, but when you're dealing with difficult issues, but you love each other, you can get through it. And, and some of those issues include management, communication problems. Sometimes you think one elder is moving slower than he should, or they think you're moving faster than you should. Sometimes there aren't clear delineations of roles and responsibilities. So how do you work through all these complexities and all these challenges? Well, you need to love each other. So relational harmony. Fourthly, diversity. What makes a good team? Theological unity, philosophical unity, relational harmony, and diversity. This is so important to me because diversity will help you consider various perspectives and needs, both in your church and in your community that you're trying to reach. It will show you blind spots that you have. Um, because the reality is you tend to reach the people that reflect the nucleus of your leadership. That's who you typically draw. And this is my biggest regret in planting. We didn't have diversity when we planted. I thought it would just happen. Um, and if you are a planter, I would say this is the one time in the life of your church you get to pick people. So, so choose wisely. Once you start, people show up. And you can't do a whole lot about that, right? I didn't think you'd be coming. And there they are. So the, 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 if, you, if, you, if you think you, your leadership is going to impact who you're going to reach and you want diversity, start with it from the very beginning that would be my encouragement. And, and for, for many reasons that, that maybe Dougie Fresh here in a moment we'll get into. Um, number five, competency. Um, that is, every leader gets stuff done. I don't know if you've ever been on these teams before, but I've been on these teams where you might agree with someone theologically. You might agree with them philosophically. You might like them, but they're lazy. Or you have the opposite. You could have somebody who works really hard, shows up, or gets there early, no question about his work ethic, but you disagree theologically on some big stuff. Um, these are the ingredients that I think make for really, really uh, effective uh, team plurality. All right, number four, let me move to practicing plurality. Um, now, what I'm about to talk about here briefly, uh, no real list for you here, just uh, one, one point. Um, not everybody in Acts 29 even agrees on what I'm going to say. Um, everybody in A29, as we said, has a plurality of elders, um, but the way they operate uh, differs, and there's flexibility and range in that. Uh, some operate more like a, a board. Um, 
uh, and you've seen churches and maybe you're in those churches that there is some kind of hierarchy or um, in authority or importance. Um, it's what Steve was talking about with the first among equals. Um, I'm advocating for a team of pastors who have equal authority. Um, and when people ask us, how, how do you go about this? How, how do you, do you not have a first among equals? I say we have a first among equals depending on the issue. Because the argument that is always made with this first among equals is there's one guy who's usually got more Bible knowledge, he has more experience, and he's more gifted, and they throw 1 Timothy 5, 17 with the elders who rule well, especially those uh, who uh, honor those who are preaching and teaching. And it is clear that there are going to be elders that do have more biblical knowledge, more experience, and they're better Bible teachers. But the problem with that is there's more to shepherding than preaching. Why do we assume that that same guy is going to be better at management, administration? He's, most likely he's not if he's actually the preaching guy. Um, and so we say, what, who is, what is your strength? What is your gift? And when it comes to these issues that we're trying to settle on, there has to be a, a sense of, of, of deferment uh, to the person uh, who is better at it, who's more gifted at it. Now, to do that, if you are that primary preacher teacher it's going to require a lot of trust and humility and patience and love respect but i think it's i think it's glorious so i offer that to you for your consideration uh, first among equals depending on the issue number five the last point we got nine minutes i ask our elders hey guys i'm giving this talk at tgc on um, moving from so solo to a plurality what would you say about transitioning? And one of our elders said, I don't know how you do it. Um, we started with it, and we feel really sorry for those who want to go for it now, who, who are in existing churches. So I am sympathetic. You guys hear me on that, okay? Um, when I went to uh, a, a large church in, in, the, in the deep south, the one thing I did was removed the title senior pastor. And I introduced myself every week as, I'm Tony, I'm one of the pastors. My title was teaching pastor. But I, and I said regularly, Jesus is our senior pastor. He is the chief shepherd, according to 1 Peter 5. And we are a team of under shepherds. We're a team of pastors. Um, and so I wanted to start to get that into the culture by dripping it every week into the church. Uh, rather than one or two sermons on plurality, I really advocate the drip method of preaching when you're trying to cast vision and create culture. Uh, whatever it is you're trying to, to press forward in, drip it every week. And so there are ways to do that, I think, as you're trying to uh, change the culture in your leadership structure uh, simply by how you introduce yourself and how you talk about the other pastors and how you put them in positions that the senior pastor uh, used to do. Uh, th there are ways to start showing this plurality without first tinkering with the bylaws and getting yourself killed. Uh, so... That's one of my goals, right? I don't want guys to be killed. Uh, not for that, at least. Um, so I, here, here's my suggestions I offer to you as a very sympathetic pastor who loves you. Um, you need to lead with the word. People have to see it in the scriptures. They need to be thoroughly convinced of it. And I think if you're going to a church that hasn't had biblical exposition in years, then please don't try to do elders immediately. The first step is actually, I think, establishing biblical authority in your church. If you can first do that, it might take you seven years before you move to 
elders. It's going to take a while for people to have this sort of attitude of, if that's what the word says, we're going to do it. And that, that may take some time. And so just be patient, lead with the word, establish a, 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 a healthy sense of, of biblical authority in your congregation by God's grace. And then at some point, you can consider, I think, a series of messages on it where you consider all the aspects of the church and, and really begin to teach it. So you lead with the word. I would say that the two places that you really need to, to, to do that, obviously, is the pulpit. The other is your membership process. Um, it's really important as people uh, enter into the church. If you, can, if you can protect the pulpit and the mem- membership process and begin to educate and train, then it's going to do wonders, I think. So we lead there. We lead with the word. Secondly, we lead with love and wisdom. Regarding love, we have to convey a shepherd's heart and not a domineering attitude on this. Um, and we have to ensure people that this changes for their good. Because we actually believe plurality is better for our congregation. It's better for our people. It's not just our preferred uh, leadership structure. We can actually shepherd better this way. So they need to know that. They need to know that this change uh, is for their, for their good. Now, when you're trying to lead with this kind of love, what it's going to require is having what we call at our church many awkward conversations with people. We often say we want to be a church that has a lot of awkward conversations. So as people uh, have questions, uh, you're going to need to sit down and talk to them in order to build consensus and harmony. Regarding wisdom, I've already said you've got to choose wisely when you do this and the timing of it. Thirdly, I would, I would add, in addition to le- leading with the word and leading with love and wisdom is obviously lead with prayer. You will probably come under attack if you're trying to transition to this because it's, a, it's, it's a, likely a change of power, a shift in power, and people don't let go of that lightly, do they? So pray for yourself. Pray, pray for that you would respond gently and lovingly. Pray for your church, that your church would be unified. You may lose people over this. You need to pray for your heart as that happens. Pray for those who get upset. So don't go about changing church structure without praying a ton. (laughs) Number four, lead with a plan. So I would sit down with some some wise leaders who've made this transition and simply ask them practically, how did you do this? Um, Particularly, how did you identify and raise up elders from within? And so we have a, a, a pretty a rigorous program we call Aspire. We meet with our interns uh, about three hours every week, and we work through in uh, a year or so uh, various essentials when it comes to pastoral uh, ministry. And uh, all of our elders, trying to think if there's an exception, all of our elders have been through Aspire. Um, and so having some kind of plan for identifying and raising up, one of the things that I realized in my former church is I really wanted to do leadership development, but I didn't have a plan, and so it would just fizzle out after a month or two. And when we planted Imago Day, we said we're going to do leadership development every single week, just like we're going to have a staff meeting every week, just like I'm going to prepare a sermon every week. I'm going to hold 2 Timothy 2.2 to be essential. Uh, even though churches don't always ask incoming pastors, what do you plan on doing for leadership development? Um, I think Paul would have it on our job description. Um, even though we don't report it, uh, how many guys did you raise up? I think Paul would. Like, this is important. So begin to think about a plan for raising up elders uh, in your church. Final thing, to transition to plurality, 
you have to lead from the ground up as well as the top down. And this is basic kind of change theory. But the ground up is developing relationships with influencers in your church. And I, I don't mean be political. What I mean is develop genuine relationships with influencers. Read books with them. Go to conferences together with them. You need support. Uh, you need to know where pushback might come from. And so this sort of ground up uh, approach is very important. Don't just go from the study to the pulpit with a change of bylaws in hands. But begin this, this groundwork of relationships and build that consensus. Top down is that changing of documents and those, those church structures. Uh, we got a lot of copies of, of church uh, bylaws, and we had a couple of aims. The one was to be really short uh, with them, um, but to be really clear about how we're leading. And so um, I hope that's uh, somewhat helpful to you. Uh, pray the Lord would grant us grace as we seek to shepherd the flock of God faithfully. And now I'm going to turn it over to my man, Doug Logan, or as I call him, Dougie Fresh. Uh, where are you at, man? Mm -hmm.